Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca. And the name of this show is The Courage to Hope. And today we have a very special guest on. We have Judge Mathers from the Taunton and Attleboro drug court system. Welcome, Judge Mathers. Thank you, Tony. It's great to be here. Oh, you're very welcome. Is, am I saying your last name correctly? Is it like Mathers, it. like Jerry Mathers, the same? Exactly. Okay. All right. All right, so <clears throat> I was doing a little bit of uh, searching and finding out information about drug court, but I think you could probably give me a much better idea. Um, tell, tell us what it's all about, because if somebody's not familiar with it, what do they need to know? Well, I would say the first thing I'd want to say is it's not all things to all people who need help with drug or addiction or alcoholism. It's It's a program that has been developed for over the past 30 years or so. Um, and it's kind of focused when it's done correctly on a specific target. And that would be drug addicted people whose criminal behavior is being fueled by their drug addiction. So <clears throat> you may come across people who are involved in the criminal justice system for a long time or perpetually, uh, they may use drugs, but they don't necessarily need to be using drugs to commit crimes. They just have that proclivity or that pathology or whatever you want to call it. Um, that's not our target. Our target are, is the people who, if you if you can address the drugs and the alcohol, they seemingly uh, automatically tend to straighten up and fly right. And, and so that's the people we're looking for. They typically have been uh, involved in the criminal justice system for years or decades. They've compiled a substantial criminal record and they've typically been in and out of uh, the House of Correction on committed sentences for years or decades. So that's our target a population. And we found, or researchers have found, that if you mix in the less involved people, you know, the weekend partiers who just had too much to drink, if you or the high school kids who got into some trouble, if you pull them into the program, they end up doing worse. So we take the Hippocratic oath. We, we At first, we want to do no harm. So we've focus it on, it's called high risk, high need, the high risk, high need population. That's the target uh, clientele, if you will. You want to just continue? Do you have any questions sure. on that? No, no, that's uh, kind of, so somebody who's been in and out of prison several times is your, you know, and mostly the time it's, they, they go into prison with an addiction problem. It seems Absolutely. to me that's what you're talking about. And yeah. We, we had Sheriff McDermott on from Norfolk County, and he was telling us that 80% of the people in his prison have addiction problems. Yeah. 
that's that's such a high percentage, you know, and so um, probably doesn't you can probably figure it out pretty quick when you yeah. see the same person month after month, you know, at the same yeah. time. Well, that's what the judges down in South Florida saw in the early 1980s. the The problem back then was cocaine. It, there was a, there was an epidemic in Southern Florida, and then they came up with the idea of trying a different approach. They were they were noticing that uh, the drug dealers who were users who were addicted it didn't matter what sort of probation terms you gave them and what's how many second chances they they tended to to use repeatedly and violate the uh conditions of their probation by testing positive um and the solution was to simply give them a jail sentence of whatever you know a year two years then they come right out and be right back in the same courtroom having used again and so uh the program was designed to take a different approach to drug addicted defendants and the pro the the approach is distilled the best way uh, like this there are certain things that we've learned that people can do right off the bat if they're committed to trying to change there are other things that they're going to struggle to do for instance remain clean and sober um so we're going to be somewhat forgiving and understanding with respect to that proclivity. Um, but we're going to insist that you continue to show up to court, number one, and when you get there, tell the truth, number two. And if you do those two things, we're not going to kick you out of the program. We're going to sanction you, uh, and we're going to uh, require you to do certain things when you pick up. Um, but we're not going to kick you out of the program and give you a two-year sentence. We will if you pick up a new criminal case. If you pick up an armed robbery, that's a deal breaker. If you pick up an assault case, that's a deal breaker. But if it's simply a matter of an addict using and uh, struggling in their attempt to get clean, that's not a deal breaker. So we combine that uh, foundation with a program that offers a lot of support and a lot of supervision. So you've got to have weekly court sessions where you meet one-on-one -on -one with the judge in open court. Uh, the, the probation officer gives a report to the judge on how he's done the last week. Um, the proba probation officer gleans the, her information from uh, typically, they start out at a drug program, so I find out what the program director or the caseworker has to say about him. Sometimes his lawyer will volunteer information. Sometimes he'll volunteer information to the probation officer. Um, and so I get updated information every week on how he's doing, good or bad or in between. And we have a conversation. We talk about it. And I want to hear about his week, if he's uh, been sliding sideways. I'm going to give him a hard time. I might give him a homework assignment. If he's really uh, going sideways and he's used, I may put him in the dock um, for the afternoon and just have him sit there in handcuffs. I might uh, hold him overnight 
in jail and have him brought back the next day just to remind him, you know, this is we're not messing around here. Uh, you've got to make an effort. Um, but on the other hand, if they're making an effort and they're staying clean, um, we work with them and support them and help them get into the drug program. And uh, I, I monitor their AA or NA involvement, and I want to hear all about that. And on it goes. There are four phases to the program. Uh, it starts out with heavy supervision. Typically, they're in a drug program, inpatient. They're living there. Uh, the phase two, they, they cut back to once every other week. Uh, they meet with me, and, and very often by then, they've been sent to a halfway house. Uh, then phase three, uh, typically they're in a sober house, so there's less supervision there, and I meet with them once a month. Um, each phase lasts about four months. And then the final phase is just sort of a hands-off phase where we just test them, but uh, we let them live their lives and go about their business and uh, continue to test them. And if all goes well, they graduate. Typically, that's 18 months, 20 months, maybe close to two years to get through the program. Uh, so um, so let me ask you, Judge, if somebody is coming to you and they've been using heavy, committed a crime, and even they've overdosed and they had to use um, methadone, I mean, um, naloxone to get them back going again, is there a time when you sentence them for to detox, like a place like Gosnell or High Point or something like that? Oh, they all start out in detox, almost without exception. In rare occasion, they come to us after they've already been detoxed. Oh, I see. Okay, so they they they've been to detox and their their court case was delayed a little bit, and then after they yeah. come out, then they get in front of you. Most commonly, okay. they're on probation. They've been given a second chance. They've messed up. They, they're given a second chance. They mess up again. And then I get them. So they're in custody. They've repeatedly violated the terms of their probation by using and by testing positive. And maybe they've got a one-year suspended sentence hanging over their head. Under the old system, they just go serve their year. Uh, plain and simple. With the drug court in place, we give them one last opportunity. Um, you can do the drug court program, but we are going to be all over you like a cheap suit, uh, you know, for at least six months or a year. And and some guys just take the view, you know, no mas. I, I, I just want to do my time and, and get on with my life and, um, try to get well on my own terms. But most people, given that option, will will take a shot at drug court. Yeah, especially if you've given them a, a day of what lockup is like. Um, yeah. They've been given some time to think about it, and typically they want to try. And typically they do try. And, and do you ever have to, do you ever feel someone's totally out of control and you have to section them? Can you do that? Um, I can't do it uh, without someone petitioning for a section. But very often the person has had a section 
along the way before I get them. But by the time I get them, usually the section has been heard. Uh, they've detoxed. They're in custody. <clears throat> and it's now what do we do, basically? Okay. Yeah. And, um, you also made reference to he a lot. Do you have more men than women? If you have more men than women, I would say it's probably 85% men, 15% women, which approximates the rate of incarceration overall. Yeah, I, I don't know if the if the uh, if it if that's the real odds in the real world, though, <clears throat> I would think that there's almost as many females who get addicted. They just don't commit crimes on their way. Yeah, yes, I think definitely. I think they do it another way. You know, yeah, no doubt. One thing I want to clarify about the program is it's just it's not me just sitting up on a judge's bench and shooting from the hip. Uh, we actually have a team of drug court team members consisting of a probation officer, a clinician, a defense attorney, a prosecutor, a cop, and typically someone from the recovery community, uh, a local director of a program or a sober house or someone like that, and very often a volunteer. Uh, and <clears throat> the probation off, we, we meet prior to the court session every week. And the probation officer will relate all of the information she's received from the program. And then I'll get information very often from the lawyer or the volunteer or the cop. Maybe the cop has learned something from uh, the officers in his department. They've learned something significant about the person or even a family member. Um, maybe the police officers learned that a participant's brother just got picked up on a trafficking charge or overdosed and had to be Narcan back to life or something like that. <clears throat> so I want all the information I can get. And after I have that, we discuss what's the next step for this person. And anyone on the team is welcome to make recommendations. And so I hear from all sides on what we should do next in terms of programming. If he's, uh, if he's messed up and I'm considering a sanction, I'll hear from what people think the sanction should be. If he's done well, even better. Um, sometimes people will recommend he star of the day or uh, receive a reward of some kind. Um, and I'll consider that. Ultimately, it's up to me, but I don't make these decisions willy-nilly. I, I listen to the team. I look, get all the information I can, and then I make a decision with respect to all of it, whether it's uh, what the next step is and is pro programming or what any rewards or sanctions are. So it's a team-based model. So the police officer that's given you the information, like you're in the caught in Taunton, but let's say the person in front of you is from Berkeley or or in a, you know, Lakeville or something. And so do they have, did they get in touch with the the local police in that town and stay and let them all know what the program's going on? Yes. The police officers are good about having contacts in the uh, local jurisdictions outside of his town. And uh, uh, they're usually very good about getting information, relevant information to me. 
I see. And then you've been doing this now for seven years, six years. Yeah. And now you've just recently opened another drug court in Attleboro. Yes, we're going to be starting any day now. We actually just need our first participant. Probation is looking in their uh, roles of probationers to see if anyone would be appropriate for it. I see. Now, how do, now are you going to be the one presiding over those over that court too? I will. Yeah. Um, you'll be. I was just going to ask you in Taunton, how many how many days a week is drug court versus regular court? Or do you do regular court anymore? I do regular court uh, five days a week. Drug court is a special session that is one afternoon. It's what and it happens to be Wednesday afternoon at two o'clock. And so I meet with the team at 1230 on that day. Uh, we discuss each case, usually takes a half an hour. We have lunch, and then we meet at the courthouse at 2 o'clock. Oh, I see. Okay. I don't know why I thought it was going to take up most of your – it sounded so so involved that it would take up more time. Uh, I was going to ask, how many participants do you have, let's say, ongoing in Taunton at the moment? Uh, right now, I think we've got six. I think in our heyday prior to COVID, we had as many as 15 or 16. But COVID really took a toll on drug courts. It was rough. It was rough on addicts. It just, I can't imagine a, a more difficult scenario than to, for, for people who are struggling with addiction, to tell them, you can no longer go to your AA and NA meetings. Uh, you have to stay home and isolate. And not only that, there are going to be government programs that will offer you large amounts of cash. For All you have to do is call this number and you'll get a check. And, and so the result was most drug courts just got pretty near wiped out. People just went back to using. It was awful. So we've started to bounce back uh, in the last uh, year and a half, but uh, we're not nearly back to where we were before. So you're talking about like the $1,200 checks that the government was handing out, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. And that's pretty, that's kind of leading the temptation pretty bad. It's like. Yeah. Most people can handle that. Drug drug addicts in early recovery, you know, find it challenging. I, I get it. And then we had a 30% increase in the state of Massachusetts with deaths during COVID as Is opposed right? to, yeah, 2018, 20, yeah. 2019, we were going down and then we shot back up and went over the 2000 mark both years. Well, uh, that makes sense because I just know anecdotally by the frequency with which a criminal case is called and someone will hand up an obituary and say the defendant is deceased and we we dismiss the case. Uh, I have noticed an increase uh, since COVID and the frequency of that happening. So that makes sense. 30% sounds about right. And what do you say would be the average if somebody was in the program? Um, what's the percentage of success rate? I would say between 50 and 60%. I think that's good because the, the drug, without a doubt, 
you know, robs the brain. Yeah. And it's really, really difficult with a person who's especially on an opioid addiction. Yeah. Um, takes a long time to, to to really heal them. It takes years, literally, you know, so. Yeah, probably um, at least 18 months. Uh, and of the people who make it through drug court, their, their recidivism rate on average drops by 50% over the next five years. So about half as many of them will reoffend versus people who were treated under the old probation system. And that's a that's a big improvement given the this uh, population of people we're working with because we're working with the people who all else equal they're going to get out and reoffend. Yeah, and I would say in Massachusetts, I'm told by the sheriffs that. It, it's about $100,000 a year to keep somebody incarcerated in the state. Yeah. So any program is definitely a bargain for the state if people stay out of prison. It's, it's, uh, uh, it, it, the prisons are expensive. The medical care is expensive. An average medical hospital bill for endocarditis, which is the heart valve inflammation that the addicts are getting these days, average medical bill is I think between 125 and 250 thousand uh, dollars to treat one episode of endocarditis. The average treatment for a crack addicted baby is 65 thousand um, dollars hospital bill for that. Uh, one of our first our first graduate had a baby uh, when she was in our program, and the the child was healthy and beautiful handsome, handsomest little guy you ever saw. Uh, she graduated from our program, had a traditional delivery. It wasn't a $65,000 crack addicted delivery. It was normal delivery. Uh, she finished school. Uh, she went back to school for nursing. And when she applied to nursing school, uh, she had a record, of course, because she was in drug court. Uh, she was asked by the admissions committee, are you sure you want to go to school? Because we're not sure you would qualify, even if you got all the schooling, because of your criminal record. She said, yes, I want to do it. Um, they said, OK. Uh, she graduated from nursing school and the nursing, whatever the overseeing authority for the nurses is. Uh, just about two months ago, gave her the good news that she was being accepted and she is now a registered uh, nurse in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And she's pursuing a career working in a detox treatment facility, given her background in addiction. Well, she'd be perfect for that job because she knows she knows when somebody's straight or telling a, a lie Absolutely. or something. <laughs> She's Absolutely. A good... uh, so, so there's someone who is, who, who is now taking care of her kids. The kids aren't a ward of the state. Um, she's earning a good living. She's paying income taxes. Uh, payroll taxes are being generated. Uh, sales taxes. Um, so there, there is some substantial front-end costs to run a drug court. Uh, most notably to pay for the uh, clinician, but 
on the back end, boy, the taxpayer gets a really good deal uh, when you have people turning it around like that. I mean, even if you're even if you have no empathy for someone who has uh, addiction issues, even if you're just simply self-centered and want to save money on uh, on taxes, you should you should consider supporting your local drug board. That's interesting news. It's a good way to because they, because of the stigma side of it, where they, people people say, "Oh no, you're just slapping their hand and and letting them go, and they're not in prison and where they should be, and all that." Uh, there's a, definitely a certain fringe of that type of person, and and that's sure. one of the reasons why you're talking to me today, because to, to get yeah. that message out, you know. Yeah. Um, if it were a giveaway, if it were a slap on the wrist, guys would be lining up at the jails to get into drug courts. And trust me, they're not. Um, it, it, it's, it's got a lot of uh, naysayers and detractors at your local jails. Any cor corrections officer would tell you that. The reason is it's tough. It, it's not easy. We're dealing with people who, who often had childhoods where they not much was expected of them. They, they didn't see the behavior model where people got up and you know checked their watch and got to work on time and uh took care of them and and so now suddenly we're we're expecting that they show up on time and wear a collared shirt and and treat address me appropriately when they talk to me and things like that and um it's it's challenging uh and we were again we're monitoring them and supervising them intensely They've got to be drug court. They've got to be drug tested twice a week. They've got to go down and pee into a cup at a local facility, and they've got to get a job and a sponsor, and they've got to be in counseling and do programming at the local community justice center. And again, I'm I'm going to be talking to them every week, and if they're not doing all these things, I'm going to want to know why not. Uh, and, and if they're not doing them, they're going to be sanctioned and they're going to be required to straighten up. So it's not a slap on the wrist. It's also not jail. So, you know, there's something in it for them. No question about it. Um, but it's not, it's, I'm not giving away the store. I was going to say, I'm a little claustrophobic. So the idea of incarceration to me is horrifying. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I would, Think you know, but the same thing, the drug addiction has really got a grip on them too. That's yeah. another whole story. Um, so judge, let's talk about you for a minute. Um, how did you become a judge and what is your background prior to this? And in to me, to me, I'm and I'm asking this is a two-part question. And is this a wear and tear on you after a while, after six years with seeing the same? going through the same you see the cycle over and over and over again you know it's got to be um it's got to be kind of tough on you uh my background is pretty milk toast i was a uh, local attorney with an office in brockton i practiced my with my brother and my father for uh 24 years and then i was lucky enough to be appointed as a judge uh nine years ago and have been doing it ever since um I started my drug court work by going out to a seminar, a week-long uh, conference in Reno, Nevada at 
a uh, drug court college out there. They call it a college where you spend a week and learn all about it. And there was nothing particularly in my background that qualified me for it. I just was interested in helping out in whatever way I could. And uh, you, you ask if it's difficult or draining. I suppose the answer is yes, particularly early on. I didn't expect to, to make the connections that I did with these people. I thought, well, I'm a judge. We're in a robe up on a bench. And this this guy, you know, has been in and out of state prison. He's got tattoos all over his body and he's uh, got a criminal record. So I don't have anything. And, and he's addicted uh, to narcotics. And I'm thankfully I've never experienced that. So uh, he's over there and I'm over here and, and, you know, I'll just sit and judge. That's what I'll do. I'm a judge. I'll be a judge. Uh, which is all. I should do in, in any other session, but there's an exception made in the drug court model. It's okay for a judge to do more than judge when he's in the in this particular session. It's okay for a judge to make a connection with this person. Uh, and I didn't really expect that to amount to much, but it actually did, and it does. And I find myself uh, growing rather fond of these guys and gals, the ones who make an effort, I do. Every once in a while, and it's only happened, I would say, two times in the seven years I've been doing this, uh, where someone has come in and just made no effort at all. They've just, you know, talked the talk, but the minute I take the handcuffs off, they, they run. Uh, and obviously, they were just looking to uh, game the system a little bit. Every other person who's ever come into my session has made an effort. And now some of them succeed, some of them don't. Some, Most of them have backgrounds that, you know, you, you look at the backgrounds and you learn some of the details. And you, you say to yourself, well, no wonder. No wonder. I'm surprised he's he's standing on two feet. I'm surprised that she is able to... Uh, speak to me in a lucid fashion but inevitably in those situations where the person makes an effort i start really pulling for them i get fond of them and and um i develop an attachment with them and i think in most cases it's mutual um and what i found the first couple of times that i had someone that i was fond of repeatedly um pick up and and use and test positive and go on the run um it really bothered me and i would say i have learned through experience to separate the addiction from the person and i am uh, i i don't take it personally anymore i understand that part of the pathology is the inability at least early on in the process to remain clean consistently and what I'm hoping for and expecting is progress. And if they're willing to keep trying, then I'm willing to let them continue to try. Uh, and so I don't get too twisted up. I, I don't I don't let I, I try not to let my ego get in the way here. And they, you know, think, how could you do this? Well, all the work I put in with you. You know, that's not going to do anybody any good. I need to set myself apart from uh, their 
process and their recovery and, and take my ego out of it and give them every chance that they deserve. And at some point, they don't deserve any more chances. They've exhausted their chances and I need to give them their sentence. I don't like to do that. I don't want to, but sometimes I have to and I do. But even then, I don't give up on them. I'm still pulling for them. And I've had guys and gals who have uh, not succeeded. They've washed out of drug court, have gone and done their jail sentences and have reached out to me afterwards and, and told me how uh, how appreciative they are of the uh, the experience they had, which, you know, is encouraging. You know, it takes uh, people get well on whatever time timeline they need to. Uh, and e even when I'm sentencing them to them to their sentence, I don't think it's a throw away the key situation. I think there's hope if they've got a pulse, they're alive. Uh, they want to get well. Uh, there's hope. Uh, they can't do it in the context of my program because, again, they've, they've uh, had the requisite number of chances. They haven't been able to pull it off, but I'm pulling for them in spirit in any event, and I'm hoping they get it someday. So when you, um, let's say somebody's come before you and they've done um, financial damages in their crime and somebody was damaged, let's say it was a, a, a small convenience store privately owned and and they they, they owe money. Um, do you put that as part of the deal when they go to out to work that you make them pay? Absolutely. Pay back the, Absolutely. It's and, and if they're going to get serious with the 12-step process, that's going to be a part of the process anyway. It's not like I, I'm asking them to do something they're not already going to be obliged to to do. Uh, I think it's the uh, eighth step where everyone has to make a list of everyone they owe an amends to. And then ninth step, you got to go around and make amends. Uh, they may not have the means if it's a, you know, three or $4,000 debt to work it all off in the time that I have them, but I certainly would expect them to, to work at it. Oh, that That's, that's good. Um, what about, are you familiar with Matt medically assisted treatment? Yes. Um, where does that fit into this? I mean, if somebody, you know, has got an addiction to, to, um, opioids and you want them to be on suboxidin or, or even methadone, uh, but the medically assisted treatment is basically bupropamine and, um, suboxin. Yeah. Um, it's up to the candidate. It's up to them. I, I don't really typically take a position on it. Uh, I think I'm a convert to the idea of having it available because of the studies that have been done that show that more people recover when it is an option. Uh, it's just inescapable that lives are saved. I don't know why, but for some people, it's a more effective uh, manner to get well and recover. Some people don't want anything to do with it. They want to detox and, and you know, try to get on with it without the kind of step-down process of suboxone or buprenorphine. Um, 
but it's up to them. And I'm happy to have people in my drug court working to recover, uh, whether with or without medically assisted treatment. Um, those that I know that have been successful with it feel it's been like a bridge and they, yeah. and they sort of get back to their, to, to a normal lifestyle. And it's, yes, you know, it stabilizes it's like, them. Yeah. It's not like you got to go out on the street every day and try to find where you're going to get two twenty milligrams of oxy exactly. or something, you know? Yeah. And, and unfortunately who you're going to rip off to get the money to buy it, you know, that's, that's the endless story. I know. Uh, but what you were saying there earlier is you do develop a little bit of empathy for the for the person that's in front of you. Absolutely. Uh, you know, that's that's a good quality in you to be able to do that, you know, and see beyond the the what the drug has caused them to do and understanding that the drug has robbed their brain. And and uh, what you're trying to do is get them to be <clears throat> to get those endor- natural endorphins back and get them to a normal life cycle. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, but I want to make the point that it's nothing in particular about me, about my tendency to empathize. Anyone, any one of your listeners who was interested, uh, who had some free time, um, if they were interested, they can go to their local district court and find out when the drug session, a drug court session meets and go in for a couple of weeks. They typically at last for an hour or so. And just sit and listen and watch what happens. It, it's a fascinating process. Uh, but more than that, it's absolutely inspiring when people turn their lives around. It's it's spectacular. It's not subtle. I'm, I'm telling you, you would be shocked at the how precipitous the turnaround can be. Not in every case, but... And some of them, like I told you, <clears throat> the first gal we ever had who graduated is a registered nurse. She went from, you know, living with an abusive boyfriend, um, drug addicted and committing property crimes to now making a good living, being extricated from the abusive relationship, taking care of her boys and helping others, other people recover. Um, we had a graduate a couple of months ago who, two weeks before the graduation, bought his first home. Uh, you know, you'd think, well, maybe if someone goes, they're a drug addict and they enter this program, maybe they can buy a car by the end of it. This guy bought a house. Uh, and a second one graduating that same day had saved $5,000 for his first house and was planning on buying it. He needed another $5,000 to qualify for the loan. He expected to have that in a matter of months or perhaps even weeks. Um, so we're talking about guys who were living under a highway overpass um, or the equivalent there too, to suddenly you know, working full-time jobs, doing well, um, one of one of them was working in recovery as a recovery coach. The other one was driving a truck making, I don't know, $26 an hour, driving a box truck, um, taking care of their kids. And it's just spectacular. Uh, so 
the point I want to make is it's human nature for anyone to sit in that session and watch the transformations that take place to to be inspired by it. It really is inspiring and moving. And and so it, it's for that reason that I that I get attached to these guys and gals because of the work that they do and the transformations that they get involved in. Sure, that's very gratifying. Well, you know, that's that's what gives you that to keep on going. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> it's what keeps you going when you have that other knucklehead who who smiles and nods his head and says, yeah, judge, yeah, judge, and goes out and does whatever he wants and picks up a new case and drives you, you know, to pull your hair out. It's the ones who, who get it uh, uh, that make it all worthwhile. I was speaking to one guy graduated, I don't know, a year and a half ago. Um, I just heard from him recently. He used to be homeless and he spent a, a number of months living as a homeless person in South, he would sleep in South Station in Boston. And uh, about three months ago, he uh, was hired by the MBTA to be a conductor. And he just got his conductor's license about two weeks ago. So he goes to work and he walks through South Station, which is the same place where he used to live as a homeless person. So the the turnarounds are pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, that must be quite an experience for him to just walk by and say, well, I used to sleep in that corner over there. With the Can you imagine? Yeah, <laughs> that's about as far as it goes. I can imagine. <laughs> but uh, it being doing it is a whole different story, you know, yeah. I'll say. I recently drove by Mass and Cassis, that what you call it, the, with the methadone yeah. mile over there. And you see 500 people out there. I couldn't believe how many were still sleeping in the. And then last week when we had temperatures minus 10 and wind chill factors oh of minus 35. And, um, I know that the mayor opened up South Station for people to sleep in to get out of the cold, you know, because out there, that kind of weather and 10, to 10, 20 minutes you could get frostbite, you know. Yeah. So I was feeling feeling what it's like. And I, 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 I talked to this guy who was in uh, – it's actually in a meditation group and they, they asked him, you know, what are you grateful for this week? You know? And he said, I'm grateful for the fact that I have a roof over my head and I, and it's kind of cushy compared to what these poor people out on the street are doing. And that's where the addiction just robs them, you know, and it's just an awful thing. And, and um, the other thing is, you know, it's not only they, it robs them of their life eventually. That's, that's the big thing that we yeah. always need to keep in mind, you know, and, when you see on um, the 31st of August, which is International Overdose Awareness Day, and you go by some place in Braintree and they've got 2,000 purple flags out, just reminding people how many people just in Massachusetts died. And um, my guest that I had on the other day reminded us just those 2,000, that's 2,000 families that were affected, a dad, a mother, siblings, aunts, uncles, and it's just not the, the one person that dies, but there's something dies in that family that's never forgotten, oh, you know. No and, doubt. No and every time you have a success rate, you have somebody who's, you know, you, you damping the urn business, you know. Right. Right. Like, you're, <laughs> you're sending out uh, ripples in the pond uh, in a positive 
direction as opposed to the devastating consequences of an overdose. Uh, and yeah, I want to mention that the guy, the conductor on the MBTA, he and I, he was a strong-willed guy and he didn't sail through. He had to really work at it, but he never gave up. And I'm reminded of the uh, um, the area of methanol mile you mentioned. Even when we were locking horns, the two of us, he wasn't doing what I wanted him to do. He would still, once a week, go to his local McDonald's and fill up a sack of 40 or 50 cheeseburgers and just walk the methadone mile and give them out and hand out cards to detox centers and just give a word of encouragement to people. Um, I was always impressed. And I, I, I look back on that and I should have known then that he's going to get it eventually um, because he, he understands the service work aspect of this. And um, eventually he did to his credit. Well, that, that's pretty amazing. You know, that he would, he would have the money to do that and then share it with others yeah. at the same time. So you were right. Yeah, he was a, not a wealthy guy, but he had enough money to, to do that once a week. And he felt it was part of his therapy. And obviously it worked for him. Yeah, I was actually discussing with somebody the idea of um, bringing blankets to those folks mm -hmm. that were up there, you know, to try to because a lot of them hung it out. They stayed in that those tents and I, yeah. I don't know how they did it. You know, it's, I didn't like going from the house to the car. Right. right. <laughs> you know, so it's, that's the way it is. Um, well, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything that we didn't discuss that you would like to, to bring up that we, um, that we didn't cover? I, no, I just want to encourage your listeners to, to, encourage if there are people in your life uh, who are involved in the criminal justice system um, and you have any influence or sway over them at all, encourage them to consider if it gets offered what's called a drug court. We're, we're starting to change the uh, nomenclature to recovery court, but whatever you want to call it, if you, if you know someone who's uh, on probation in a district court and has that option available to them, suggests that they may want to have a look at it. Uh, we're having a we're having a better time for whatever reason, recruiting among ca the Caucasian population uh, on probation and involved in the criminal justice system. We're having a rough time. Uh, with African Americans, don't know why, uh, but the uh, percentages are are way below what they are among the Caucasian population, and uh, we want everybody to have a chance at recovery. Uh, we don't want this to be segregated in any way. So, anyone listening who who knows anyone um, who might benefit. And bearing in mind the definition that I just gave, they got to be high risk, high reward. We're not dealing with the teenagers who are just partying a little too much. Um, but if you know someone who has that available to them, uh, suggest that they consider it. It could save their lives. It could could help them turn their lives around completely. And across the Commonwealth, I saw in 20.
16, it said there were 26, but is there probably 30 or 32 drug courts now, or recovery courts? Uh, I would say so. Uh, and I think in the near future, every court will have one or have access to one. I think within a year or two, that'll be the case. That'll be good. Now, if you're just talking about, so someone's on probation, they but they just ask their probation officer to, they want to participate. Is that how they, how, how do they reach, they can how ask do they reach the probation you? officer? The probation officer can ask them. Their lawyer can suggest it. We're really wide open. Uh, but these suggestions usually happen when they are in crisis, when they have relapsed, when they've picked up a new case. That's typically when people consider it, but uh, it's not its not a prerequisite. Okay. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, I know Cody. You, you actually have a, you're in court today, right? I am. In, yeah, it's like I've taken up your lunch hour. So no problem hopefully. at all. I was happy to be here. I always like talking about drug court. Oh, I really appreciate your time. And I understand from inside information over at the Attleboro Courthouse that everybody thinks quite highly of you. Well, thank you. I I think quite highly of the people here. It's a great court to work. Oh, very good. I'm glad to hear that. Okay. And uh, I've been speaking to Judge Chuck Mathers. Did I get that right? You got it and, right. And he runs the, uh, and I say he runs, he is the sitting judge of the both Taunton and now the new Attleboro, soon to be recovery court instead of uh, drug court. I like that name much better. In those two towns in Bristol County, Massachusetts. We really want to thank him for his time. And and if I guess if I was a criminal, I'd hope to go in front of you. Uh, thank you, Tony. Okay. All right. We were just speaking to Judge Mathers from the Taunton and Attleboro Recovery Court System, which used to be called Drug Court. And before we go tonight, I want to talk to you about House Bill HD 3147. And it's actually sponsored by Representative Fioli from the, the South Coast area down near Marion, Mattapuiset, and co-sponsored by Josh Cutler from Duxbury, Pembroke, Hanson area. And what it is, is the Right to Know Act is is basically a warning up until actually still right now, if if somebody 16 or 17 is getting a prescription for opioids, um, the doctor doesn't have to say anything to anybody. He can just write the prescription and hand it to you. Well, we'd like to change that. If you're 18 years or younger, what we would like to have on this bill is that the parent of that person has to be sat down and explain that this is a highly addictive opioid and could cause addiction if continued use. And the continued use, we know, doesn't have to be very long. Once you're introduced to the drug, if you're, if it changes you and, and your endorphins get go off the chart, you know, the person who's getting introduced to the drug is going to want more. And we want to make sure that a parent knows this. I was one of these naive parents. My son was given a prescription for 100 oxycodones. This was back in 1995. And myself, I filled it. I went to CVS and got the prescription filled, not knowing what I was filling. And nobody told me anything. Nobody said this was a narcotic. Nobody said that this could cause addiction. And it did cause addiction. And my son started on those and never looked back after 20 years. And it eventually ended his life. So 
we want you to be aware and we have to force people sometimes to, to do the right thing. So in bill HD 3147, what it does is it leaves it open so that the, the parent has to be notified and the doctor has to tell, talk about alternative medicine besides the opioids. And when you think about it, kids who are getting their wisdom teeth out, that's the biggest place where they get a prescription for Percocet or Vicodin. And that's how teenagers, and, and not always, you know, some take, kids take one pill or two pills and it's fine. But we don't know who's going to be those one or two kids. We want to make sure that the parent is well advised. So if we pass this bill, it doesn't cost any money. It just makes people more aware of what's going on, what's out there. And of course, the drug companies don't want to pass this bill because they want more prescriptions filled because that's how they make money. But we want to save lives. And this bill has been passed in 18 states and two of our neighbors, New Jersey and New Hampshire, actually had this bill passed four years ago. And in both cases, teenage addiction is way down as opposed to Massachusetts, where it's way up. During the pandemic, we had a 30% increase in overdose deaths in Massachusetts. And New Hampshire and New Jersey stayed stable. They did not have any increase like we did. And Massachusetts should not be the last state in the union to pass a bill like this. So we'd like to get it passed. So if you call your state rep or your state senator and tell them that you want to see HD 3147 passed, you can go on the um, Massachusetts government website and you can read the entire bill. It is like five pages long, but because um, it goes into fine detail with what it's all about. I very much want to see this bill get passed this year. Last year we tried, but... It was a two-year session. We, we got it through the committee, got it into appropriations, but they never voted on it. So it had to be resubmitted, and now we're on ground two. So please help us get HD 3147 passed. Let's save some lives. So this is Tony LaGreca, and this is Courage to Hope, and I want to thank you all for listening today.